Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to be with you. And that was a wonderful performance. Almost as good as the uh, New York Philharmonic, I guess, or <laughs> Mormon choir. Anyway, we do have the wonderful children, and that gives a special spirit, of course, to what is being sung. And we appreciate that. I thank Mr. Wakefield for the very fine sermonette, very well thought out and helpful. Certainly thank the youth choir for the fine performance, and we're very grateful for, you know, the team that we have here. We have a team here at headquarters and wonderful ministers of the field, and we are indeed very grateful for the continual growth and the continual unity we have in the church. Everything seems to be shaping up well for the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe if we all pray real hard. Now, numbers are not the most important thing. We know that character is the most important thing. But nevertheless, I'm sort of hoping we can, even if we have to count the stay-at-homes, which other groups, we could end up with over 9,000 people. It's kind of a round number, you know. So we hope we'll have over 9,000 for the feast around the world. And we are certainly growing, and that would be the first time ever that we've achieved that number. And uh, so we can look forward to that. Well, brethren, I want to talk about something. Mr. Ames uh, talked about a broad aspect of it in a very fine sermon uh, last Sabbath on the importance of character and building godly character. I want to talk about one aspect of character that all uh, great men and women of God have always had, and it is extremely important and I think most of us know that, and yet it's one aspect of character that would certainly supposed to be missing, even according to the Bible, or certainly not very prevalent in the latter days. We need this part of Christian character more and more as the terrorist attacks, and there might even be a terrorist attack this weekend. I think you know that. They're talking about it, have a credible threat. And frankly, if I were a terrorist, and I'm not, <laughs> but if I were a terrorist, and I think these guys are all not stupid, they're misguided, but some of them are pretty smart, they might decide to wait to the next day for two reasons. Not only because everybody might be ready on Sunday, but on Monday everyone will be back at work again. You see what I mean? They could do a lot more damage if they come into the middle of the city. Or they might wait till Tuesday. They're in tune with the devil of his ideas, and Tuesday is the 13th, unlucky 13. So I don't think we're going to be home free ever, but we like more likely by Wednesday. But between now and Wednesday, a terrorist attack could occur in one of our major cities. And, of course, one or two of these groups of terrorists have said they would like to attack 100 cities across the country, and that might involve us right here sometime in the next few days or next few months, and we need to understand that. So we're going to need this aspect of character a lot more as terrorist attacks, as fires. I called my daughter in Austin a few days ago, and she was able to see smoke on one side and smoke on the other side where they were living just south of Austin. Luckily, they weren't living east of Austin because that's where these record-breaking fires were. They've had the most number of fires and greatest fires in the entire recorded history of Texas just the last week or two. So these things are getting to be really bad. Terrible flooding, drought, alternating drought and flood, as it tells us in Amos 4, 7, I think it is, disease epidemics, and then persecution is coming on God's church. 
And I think we all know that more than we have ever had before. We want to have a powerful impact on the world with all of our hearts so people out there can understand. On the other hand, once we have a powerful impact, that's going to bring persecution more quickly. And I hope we realize that too and we try to get it ready for it. So, brethren, we must really grow in this aspect of character. And all too often I have seen men and women give up on God when things don't seem to be going well. When things, quote, go wrong, end quote, it's so easy for people to get their mind off God and the reality of God and the way God works. I remember over in England when the college closed back in 1974 and completely closed then in 1975, Awful lot of people just took off. I used to think that Brick and Wood was the most uh, converted college in a way because that was Mr. Armstrong's favorite college and he spent a lot of time there and the British seemed to be more conservative. But when it came right down to Christian character, they weren't any better than us. They were not any worse. So I'm not condemning you British people over there. Don't want to frighten our British ministers here. <laughs> I don't mean that at all. But they had their problems. It was startling to me to see leading men and women. I don't want to name them. Some might have come back and I haven't heard about it. But I'm talking about department heads, professional men, capable men and women that I thought were very strong. All of a sudden, no job in the college, no paycheck. Apparently, Friday night sunset didn't mean anything anymore. No Sabbath day, no God No church of God, no job, no God. Where is the faith in that kind of individual? Do you have absolute faith and trust in God? Is God real to you? I don't think he was really real to a lot of those people looking back on it. I don't think God was absolutely the center of their life at all. And I don't think God was real to them to see how they fell away so easily. A few years later, we had other things along the way, but a few years later, we had the 1979 receivership. And the state of California broke in on us, and they had armed guards with their pistols showing, you know, strutting around the way the policemen are taught to do to kind of have that look-tough attitude. You know, they don't walk that way all the time, but when they're on duty, they have that way of walking around and acting tough. Don't tread on me, and type of thing. And they were walking around the campus of God's church. And one guy was right outside my office for a while. And they were there because they had been told by their bosses that this religious outfit had people who were ripping off money from people and bad things were happening and so on. So they spent thousands of dollars and no doubt tens of thousands of dollars and man hours investigating and investigating and investigating us. And we were found, they found out that these things were not true. And they were not true. I was on the inside and I've known Mr. Armstrong or had known him for decades back then. And by the end of his life, I had known him pretty well for 36 years. He had his human faults, but that was not one of them at all. And the other guy who was working with him was, uh, you know, had problems, but that was not his problem. When I came into office, I had the business manager at the time, a different guy who didn't trust him any more than I did, check up on him when he was going on a trick. And we went through his files. I found out Ted had done that sooner. 
And I realized, as one of the men told him, he might be slick and get everything he could, but he was going to get it legally because he did not want to go to jail. None of this stuff they accused us of was true at all. It was not that way, but it was kind of scary. And a lot of people lost faith. We had dozens and scores of brethren and dozens of ministers. And ministers called me long distance, you know, berating me. Why are you trying to back up that Armstrong? And some of them were cussing. They were taking God's name in vain and using damn and hell and all these bad words. On and on. I had to fire one of them right on the phone. I said, I'll give you every chance. Come on out here and we'll talk. No, I don't care. Blank, blank, blank. So finally I had to say, you're out, (laughs) even on the phone. They gave up on God because of what? Some great sin? No, there was no great sin. It was just a few malcontents trying to make something out of nothing and to get rid of Mr. Armstrong as God's apostle. But these people, because things were uncertain, because it looked bad, because the state had come in on us, there was all kinds of bad publicity they decided to leave the church of God. And brethren, I could name many of them because I was right in the big middle of it. I could name many of them by name, of course. But some of them dropped clear out of God's church. They're not in any branch of God's church. They just left God, left God's church totally, absolutely. Why? Because of an accusation against two of the leading men in God's church, Mr. Armstrong and this other individual. So... Where was their faith in God? Was God real to them? Hadn't they read the Bible? Was God absolutely real and the center of their lives? No, he was not. Are we going to have trials like that here, now, in the future, in this life? Yes. Where do you stand? Is God real to you? Is everyone going to be perfect here in the work and make perfect decisions and live a perfect life and do everything perfectly until the end? And if one of us is not perfect, are you free to just leave God and go away from God and God's law and God's commandments and God's church? Well, of course not. You have to think it through ahead of time. Are these things real to you? Where are you going to be when accusations come? Where are you going to be if terrorism come and maybe some of our homes are blown up or rocks are thrown in some of our homes or some of our ministers get thrown in jail? Say, wow, Mr. Ames is down here in jail and Dr. Meredith, maybe both of us. This must be a great big scam. Oh, really? I guess it was a great big scam when Paul and Barnabas were thrown in jail, when Paul and Titus were thrown in jail or Paul and Timothy. Did that make the New Testament church of God? A great big crooked outfit? Of course not. But read about it in the Bible. And you'll see that they were accused of things. And they were put in jail, not always for religious reasons. They were accused of having another king or undermining the state or doing various things. As Jeremiah was put in the mire because he was accused of being disloyal and wanting the enemy nation to win and not being loyal to the king at that particular time. So as we sing America the Beautiful and these fine songs, we want to be loyal to our nation. And we should be. We can be very thankful and obey the laws and pay our taxes and be upright citizens. But sometimes we may have to choose between God and man and obey God rather than man. And that does not make us disloyal or terrorists or anything like that. 
And we see that with Jeremiah when he was put down in the mire, as you know, because he did not back up everything the king wanted and let them know that this other power was going to win and they better realize that and so on because that was God's instruction to him. How real is God to you when these trials and these troubles come? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. Hebrews chapter 11, and a very familiar verse here, but I do want to start with it at this time. Hebrews 11, and beginning in verse 6. God says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe, not might, he must believe that he is. You've got to prove to yourself that the God, the creator of heaven and earth is up there. He put the sun, the moon, the stars in the sky. He guides the wet weather overall. He guides the rise and fall of nations overall. He is working out his purpose and he has a great purpose and nothing shall stop that purpose. We'll have individual trials and tests along the way. All of us do. I hope all of us will be praying for Mr. Rawson, as was announced. And I hope very much that all of us will be praying for uh, this uh, dear lady right here that was announced as well. And that we are able to pray for the ones right here in our local church who sometimes get cancer. As my first wife got cancer, I had to carry on and wonder, where is God? When God did not choose to heal her. Well, I found out, of course, in the next 35 plus years that God is still alive. His purpose is still going on. His work is still going on. And Christ is still coming back soon as King of kings and Lord of lords. If God lets me die before the end of this work, which is very possible at my age, does that mean God has gone off? No, it does not. Mr. Ames and I could both die. We think Dr. Winnale is eternal. Of course, he's, he's younger, <laughs> and he's a slender, healthy person, nothing bad about him so far. But at any rate, we need to recognize that our lives and those particular things do not determine whether or not God is real uh, one way or the other. And we do have to understand that very, very much. So I hope that we do put our lives in God's hands, and we believe God. We must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If we diligently seek God, he is there, and he will bless us, but it doesn't say if we half-heartedly seek him. You know, please understand that. We're supposed to diligently seek him. So I hope all of us do, and that we diligently pray for those among us who are sick. We have many people all over the world that we hear of, a great deal and that we don't just sometimes I read these things and Monica gives me things from all over the world and I think it was Mr. Sergio Carvajal I guess is the right pronunciation and first that I didn't pray about him then I saw that line there later then I began to pray for him and realize he's our brother he's down there in, in, in Central or South America and even though we don't see him he has this terrible or did have this terrible situation perhaps still does it still could spread and this kind of thing. And we have to remember those brethren that we know and love and pray for them. And and we should pray for Mrs. Harp, who's right here among us. 
and all the people who have these things wrong and ask God to intervene and know that he is there. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But we need to seek him for our help and we need to seek him to heal these people and everything else, but do it with all our hearts. Then he goes on, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, the awe of God. He wasn't afraid of God, but he had this awe of that great, powerful spirit being, moved by the awe of God, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. Some people don't want to go somewhere they've never been before. It's kind of scary to them or whatever. Well, we have to say, so what? God is the God of creation. And when we're, you know, sent somewhere or we're told to go somewhere we're not familiar with or it seems scary, uh, we, we should put faith in God. He went out not knowing where he was going. Because his total faith was in God. By faith he sojourned in a land of promise as in a country, a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And as I think one who was introducing, I think our song leader here talking about America, the listen, we love this nation, but we have a city prepared a nation that is being prepared far more important than America or Canada or Great Britain or any other nation. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, this old man Abraham way up in his 90s, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all, and he'd named some even before I broke into the chapter here, these all died in faith. So having faith does not mean that you live forever in the physical life. We see that. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, And we have to do that, brethren, when we see that God says something will happen a certain way, we'd better believe that. And if he has a promise, we'd better embrace that, knowing that God will either heal us in this life, or if we put our life and our faith totally in him, he will give us eternal life. We will be healed, but we'd be healed in a different way in a different time than might be preferable but he will take care of us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And we put our arms around God and he will put our arms around us and we embrace those promises. And that's what we should do and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. All of us are just sojourners here. Our bodies, our lives, as James said, is like a vapor, a little wisp of smoke. You see a little tiny wisp of smoke coming out of a chimney A light breeze comes along and it's gone. That's the way my life is. And that's the way your life is. And we need to really think about it that way. I used to feel sorry for some of the older brethren in the church. I think I've used this example before. You'll probably get tired of my examples. But I I, I really did. I felt bad for older members. I thought, well, they may die. 
You know, they're getting up in their 70s or 80s or this poor old person, he's going to die. And they kept right on living, not forever, but another five or ten years, some of them. And my dear friend, Dick Armstrong, suddenly died at age 29. Dick was 29 years old. And suddenly I thought, I don't feel sorry for these old guys up in there. I'm, I'm concerned. I'm one myself. You know what I mean? But our particular age is nothing to worry about if our life is in God's hands. Some young person in their teens could die, as we know they often do in automobile accidents or any number of reasons. Young people in their 20s or 30s, we don't know. And you young people don't know. It's good to begin to seek God while you're young and have God become very real to you because he is the ultimate reality. And as this, these events come about in the world, which Mr. Armstrong, God's servant, told us about, over 60 years ago, and I heard him saying it way back in 1944 and 45, that Germany would come up, a United States of Europe would be formed, America would go down because of our sins, and all these other things. And later in the 60s and 70s, he said that if the British people did not repent, the empire would be gone. In fact, he said that back in 1954. And then he began to say, long before he died, that the sea gates, the great sea gates, would be taken away. And he said that in 1954. As I've told you a couple of years later, my wife and I were sent to Britain, and Suez was all of a sudden gone. Later, the Bab el Mandeb, the southern entrance of the Red Sea, was gone. The Strait of Hormuz was gone. The Strait of Malacca was gone. Singapore and the Malacca Straits, gone. Britain doesn't control those anymore. And all the other great sea gates begin to be taken away except two. And now Gibraltar and Falkland Islands are left. They're the only two. And we see almost every few months how the other nations are agitating to get Britain out of there. They probably will. How can he know all these specific things all over the world? Major nations, major sea gates. Because God said so. That's why the God of the Bible is very, very real. And what he said is happening right in front of our eyes. So let's understand and be moved by that and know that we can have faith in God. But brethren, in the immediate months and years ahead, we here and you brethren around the world who are hearing this will all be tested. Some of you brethren in Australia have already been tested, I'm sure, by the terrible floods in Queensland that may have hurt some of your homes, that may have hurt some of your neighbors or relatives, that may have hurt some of your businesses and your incomes. And some of our brethren, including my daughter, are virtually surrounded by fires or have been recently down there in Texas, in Austin, Texas. Not a good place to be when you're surrounded by fires. Everything is bone dry. And some of the worst drought in the history of that entire state is going on right now in other parts of the United States. Is it going to get better? There will be little ups and downs. But I feel now we are entering the time of sorrows. We are entering the gun lab, and the basic direction from now on, as you see, will be down, not up. And we have to know that. God is going to shake this nation like a rag doll until people finally begin to realize what they don't know now, something's going on. And God could have protected us from this terrible thing back 9-11, but he did not. Because even then, we were starting to let the homosexuals come into the public offices 
and take over the churches and take over the colleges and take over the nation. We're already killing, as we've done by now, about 45 million little unborn babies, murdering them through abortion. We're already having all kinds of filthy stuff on television, the motion pictures, and all through our society. We're already taking God away from the public square and telling him to get out of our lives. So God is getting out of our lives, and that way he's letting us go down. We have turned away from him, and unless there is a national repentance such as this nation has never experienced, a real repentance, the direction will continue to be down. So we need this faith. We need this absolute confidence in God through these trials. We will all be tested as Abraham was tested and then the others, great men of God and women of God were tested. We've got to make God real. Notice back in James, if you would, the book of James, chapter 1, brethren. Turn there, if you would. I'm going to get a little bit of this tea. In James, chapter 1, and verse 2, My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith. God is going to be testing and testing and testing us. We can all have personal trials and get upset at that. Or parts of the work might be closed down as parts of Ambassador College and the Worldwide Church of God were closed down. People thought no job, no God. Now, don't get worried in a wrong way, brethren. We're not thinking of, turn, of tr- closing anything down now. I'm saying it just could happen later, of course. But we need to understand these things can happen. We can have sickness in our own family. We can have other kinds of trials. We can get our feelings hurt about any number of things. So we have to recognize that and never let that get our minds off the big picture. Count it joy when God tests you, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. Cry out to God. Ask God regularly for wisdom. And I would suggest, as I've done a lot more recently that you all regularly, and I mean this with all my being, brethren, all of you regularly read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. He says many times, in multitude of counsel there is wisdom. And all through that book he repeats over and over, he who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we have to know those principles and many other such principles all through the book of Proverbs. It's so important to understand that. So anyway, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. But read the book of Proverbs. Read other books in the Bible that give you wisdom. Other books also that give you wisdom. Who gives to all men liberally and without reproach and will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. I know that's hard. It's hard for us to ask in absolute faith and not doubt at all because we're human. And if you study the Bible and then you go right next door and push the button and the television comes on and all this stuff comes into your mind, all, all of a sudden God seems less real. You know, you have to, I think it helps me. I'm weak that way too. If I study the Bible, then it's better for me to go sit and look out the window and think a while 
or do something else for a while and not immediately start reading, you know, something in the paper or watching TV and getting my mind off God. It's better to just sit and think once in a while. Meditate about what you've just read in the Bible. Make it real to you and try to brand it in your brain, so to speak, so you can have faith and trust in what God says. So don't doubt. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. Do not let that man suppose that he will receive anything of the Lord. For he, uh, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God wants us to have faith and not immediately start doubting the minute we ask for something and don't get it right away or the minute some trial comes on. Turn to First Peter now. First Peter chapter 1 and beginning in verse 5, breaking into the thought he's talking about you. Verse 5, you who are kept by the power of God through faith. That's how we're kept in the power of God, because we put our faith and trust in God. You are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, knowing that's going to come, though now for a little while, if need be, you you have been grieved. Trials hurt. They're not fun at the time. My trials have not weren't always fun at the time at all. They hurt. You've been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ when Christ comes again. And brethren, he says that your faith may be tested by fire. And we know what that means. Fiery trials, all kinds of upsets, persecution, beatings, torture, yelling, losing your jobs, losing someone dear to you and your family, terrible personal sickness, just to bring you down. God allows those things to come on us. He's allowed those things to come on me many times. He will allow those things to come on you if he's working with you. And as Mr. Wakefield pointed out in his very fine sermonette, he's going tap, tap, tap. He's knocking off this part of the carnality and that part of your carnality over there and this part of my carnality and that other part. He's working with us. He's teaching us lessons for all eternity. And we have to really think of it that way and learn from it. Turn back to Second Corinthians now, if you would, and let's see how these trials have come on God's servants in the past. Would you pass the test that the Apostle Paul had come on him? He describes himself back here in Second Corinthians chapter 11. He's been talking about false apostles, verse 13, deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. False apostles. We have some out there today even that call themselves apostles and are no more apostles than Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny. He says, verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant and stripes more abundant. And brethren, when he talks about stripes, we can just real quickly read right on and skim over this. But if it could be put in a powerful Hollywood movie and you saw being 
saw Paul being tied over a wooden stake or a platform or a big stone pillar and tied down. And a great big guy with a long whoop! And he began to groan and writhe in agony as the blood began to pour down his back. It would kind of make an impression on you that maybe my words cannot make on you. He was beaten and beaten and beaten again and again. He could have said, I'm through with this. Where is God? About the time they'd hit him 15 times and he was about to faint from pain and exhaustion. And stripes more abundant above measure in prisons more often. Thrown in jail again and again in deaths. He was thrown apparently into a lion's den just like Daniel And you know how it is. You don't know for sure. You hope everything will work out like it did with Daniel. But if the lion gets closer, you can't be sure if he's going to just suddenly tear your whole guts right out and eat you. You have to have faith in God. He had to go through those things. Paul did again and again. Where was God in all of this? He could have easily got upset and turned aside. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Remember that at Lystra? They took him outside town and stoned him, and he was left for dead. And the implication is the Greek wording indicates he apparently was dead. I wouldn't base my life on that, but that's the way it seems to read. He was dead. He was left as dead, so he either was in a kind of a coma and looked like he wasn't breathing, and then he suddenly got up and went right back through Lystra, Iconium, and Derby, and these cities he'd been preaching, and he said that through much tribulation... We must enter the kingdom of God. Wow, he'd just been there through much tribulation. And he still had scars probably all over his face when he was saying that. Through many trials, we entered the kingdom of God. So he went through those things. I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. As I've said, floating out there, hanging onto some plank or log. For maybe 36 hours all through one night and most of the next day and maybe at night looking up at the stars and he's floating up and down and thinking, well, God, you're up there and I'm down here. (laughs) Please take care of me. He had to talk to God over and over. I'm sure he did. And he didn't know that God was going to deliver him every time, I don't think. Doesn't it say that? He probably hoped he would, felt he might, felt he probably would, but he didn't know that. He had to have faith in God. In journeys often, and they weren't going first class on some big airplane back then. They were walking across the country where there were wild animals at times and robbers and snow and ice and all the rest of it. In perils of waters, perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil, tired night after night, day after day going on, a lot of times with not very much food, not enough clothing, being wet perhaps with no change of clothes. And thirst, fastings often, cold, nakedness, beside the other things that comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So Paul had to have faith in God. Think about it. Can you go through that type of thing? Will you go through that type of thing? It won't be directly the same because you're not an apostle. But you will be tried in things like that, perhaps, as some of us have to lose our home. And some of your brethren, your brethren here, I'm not going to exclude you. You may too. 
But some of your brethren off in other nations may literally have to lose your home or be chased out of your country. We know some of our brethren in South Africa are sometimes in physical danger and thinking what, what day or month will they have to flee and go to New Zealand or somewhere else in order to live and just leave their home behind and never see it again. People know those things can happen because of the world we're living in today, and it's going to get increasingly bad all over. So we have to have faith in the invisible God and know that he is there and know that he will take care of us. How real is God to you? Paul learned to see God, and he learned to see God in all these situations. And he learned to seek God with all his heart. And I don't have time to turn to all the scriptures on that, but you know, he told the brethren in the, in the epistles he wrote, how in all my prayers I remember you every day. In all my prayers I remember you regularly. He was probably praying for dozens of churches and perhaps hundreds of members by name. And I mean that. He named, must have been 35 of them there in Romans when he was writing the book of Romans. He, he was not distracted by television, all the stuff we have, and the men had very powerful minds back then. People did more than we do today, probably. They hadn't degenerated in the same way. So he was praying constantly for the churches and for individual people and walking with God, talking with God. God, you're up there and we're here. We don't see you, but we see your hand here. We see you've delivered us over there. We see it's real. It's not our imagination. These things are happening. And he is our father in heaven. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we must know and know that we know that. So that we make the right decision when the trial comes, whatever the trial is. Turn back to Acts, if you would now, the book of Acts, chapter 9. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts in chapter 9. And here in the beginning, it talks about Saul breathing out threats and slaughter, was murdering these disciples of the Lord and doing it in all sincerity. He thought they were heretics because they were accepting this new religion about this Jesus of Nazareth, whom he thought was a false Messiah. And everything indicates he was sincere in that. He was very zealous. And he was really beating up on them again and again, throwing men and women into prison. But then a light shone around him from heaven on the way to Damascus. And verse 4, then he fell to the ground and heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This voice came right out, a kind of voice he never heard before. And he knew it had to be from God. It was from the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that was his attitude from then on. I will go anywhere, bear any burden, go through any trial. What do you want me to do? At that point, even then, he started to have the right attitude. And the Lord said, Arise, go to this city. And he went in, and and when he got into Damascus, blind, had to be led in there. In verse 9, he was three days without sight. God didn't tell him to fast. At least we have no record of it. Paul knew what to do. 
What do you do when a severe trial comes? Do you get your feelings hurt? Do you get mad and leave the church because, you know, our building has been broken into and the ministers are accused of something? You think, well, this is all a big fake or God would not allow this to happen. What's going to, what's your stumbling block? What's going to take to turn you aside? No, Paul didn't start thinking that way. He immediately knew what to do, and he fasted. No food, no water. He was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. No food, no water, period. Three days of a real spiritual fast, and obviously crying out to God, Help me understand, O God. Teach me. Lead me in your way. And he meant it. Now, there was a certain disciple of Damascus, Ananias, and Paul was told that he would be coming, or he was told to go and see Paul. And so the Lord said to this Ananias, verse 11, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is what? Reading the funny papers or getting upset at the church? No, he is praying. Paul began to fast, and Paul began to pray and pray his heart out, asking God for guidance. So that's what he did when he was struck blind. He turned to God with all his heart. Turn back to Deuteronomy, if you would, brethren. Let's go back to the book of Deuteronomy at this point, and I'm going to begin reading in Deuteronomy 9. Here it's been describing how... Moses went up to the the mount to receive the Ten Commandments. And it says in verse 9, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and I neither ate bread nor drank water. He fasted totally for 40 days and 40 nights. But then you read in verse 15, when he came back down and found that these people were having this sexual orgy, drinking and, and he, God, several had to be destroyed, several thousand because of fornication. It tells it elsewhere. So I turned and came down from the mountain, verse 15, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tables of the covenants were in my hand, you see, written by the very hand of God. Then I took the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. It was certainly all right in God's sight. Maybe God told him to do that, but he must have known it was all right or he wouldn't have done that. And I fell down before the eternal as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin. When sin came right down big time on the, you know, headquarters of the work, you could put it that way if you want to think about Ambassador College. Or if some big thing happened here, would we all leave or would we fast and cry out to God? That's what, that's what Moses did do. Some people at headquarters in Pasadena felt that because there had been some sin around there earlier and then from other people and then Mr. Armstrong was traveling a lot with this other guy and they heard that he was misusing things and the accusations came and even the police came in. What did they do? Well, some did fast and pray, but many gave up. We lost a few hundred people during those months, and we lost several dozen ministers during those months. I can name some of them. They gave up. They did not fall on their face and fast and pray. Teach us, O God. Save your church. Save your work. Here's what Moses did. 
These people were down there committing fornication, drinking too much. It was awful. But Moses cried out to God and he fasted again. So he ended up fasting 80 days. That's right. 80 days, 40 days, a few days in between, and then 40 more days because of their sin which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of God to provoke him for anger. For as I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure with which the eternal was angry with you to destroy you. But the eternal listened to me at that time also. God had heard him earlier when he turned to God like that with all his heart and all his soul. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron. Remember, Aaron had turned aside on other occasions. He was in, you know, Moses older brother but he was not as strong and would have destroyed him so i prayed for aaron also at that time so then he said i took your sin and crushed it and put it in the river or the brook and then when the lord sent you up from kadesh barnea to possess the land and you rebelled and you did not believe nor obey his voice and you have been in rebellion against god from that day until i from the day i knew you And he says in verse 25, Thus I prostrated myself before the eternal. Brethren, that must have meant that he not only got on his knees, but fell right down on his face. You've seen these Muslims, and sometimes the men, that's their tradition to do that. They'll get a rug often, but they put their face right down on the ground. That part may be all right, because they're prostrating themselves. But Moses simply fell down and prostrated himself on the ground and to seek God because the Lord said he would destroy you. Therefore, I prayed to the eternal and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, your inheritance, for whom were redeemed through your greatness and brought out of the land of Egypt. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your promises. Remember that you are these people. Thus he said here, and I want to go back and read verse 25. Thus I prostrated myself before the ever-living one. Forty days and forty nights I kept prostrating myself over and over. He got right down on his face. God, have mercy. Have mercy on your people day after day for forty days. How many of us have ever sought God that way? I can't say I have. I've never done that. But this is in the Word of God. This shows you how some of these great men of God did do that. You read in Daniel 9, you know, how he began to seek God with all of his heart and prayer and fasting and everything. And then God sent an angel to give him this wonderful promise and so on. They were seeking God with every fiber of their being. So, brethren, as we approach the end of the age and as terrible things come on us... It is going to be good for us if we learn to go all out for God and make God very, very real to us. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of David, the real God must be real to us. In him we live and move and have our being. And we see a storm, well, no, that is God's power. When we see the lightning and thunder, we should not be afraid. We don't want to go out and take unnecessary chances, but that is God's power. When we see our nation going down and terrible things happening, we know it is within God's will and probably for a very good reason. And even though it hurts, 
As Jesus said, when you see these things beginning to happen, lift up, lift up your eyes. Look and see that the end is near, that Christ is coming for your redemption is drawing near. You'll know it's getting that much closer and you can say, thank God. We're sorry this is happening humanly. We're sorry for some of these individual people. Some of them may be our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, but God has to shake everybody to get their attention. And it's to shake you and me along the way to get our attention and to bring us closer to God. So we want to really understand that, brethren, more than perhaps many of us do. You're going to need this kind of faith in the years just ahead. Remember, God tells us we've repeated this many times, so I won't turn and read it. It's just part of one verse, but Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 For those of you who are new, write it down. Look it up. Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. As you hear God's word preached here, as you hear God's word preached over television or whatever, true ministers of God, as you read the word of God yourself, it builds faith in you. If you drink into this word and feed on it, you will build faith. And you can pray for faith, and you should. You can hope for faith, and you should. But one of the main ways to build faith is to drink in of this word. There, in this word, you see the mind of God in print. And you see the examples of the way God has dealt with people for thousands of years. And as you visualize it, as you visualize the things of Abraham going here and how God delivered him, As you see the things of Moses and see how God delivered him and eventually delivered Israel, yet through trial and test. As you see, David had to cry out to God even for his life and read the book of Psalms, how he had to hide out in caves and literally run from Saul for about 10 years, and yet God always delivered him. You begin to realize that same personality is my father, my father, our father, who art in heaven. And he loves me, and his word tells me he will never leave me nor forsake me. So I will never leave him nor forsake him either, we should say, in our hearts. So let's understand that. Notice John, the sixth chapter, brethren, if you would now, back in the New Testament again, the book of John, chapter 6. Notice what God tells us here. John 6 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and probably one of yours too. It's just loaded, as we say, with tremendous spiritual meat. He says in verse 51, I could start earlier, but I'll break in here. Jesus Christ says, John 6, verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will never, or he will live forever. He didn't mean in this flesh, obviously. He explains that later on. But he will live forever. And the bread which I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. But was that bread just his physical flesh when he was beaten and hung on the cross? Is that what he meant? That's not the major meaning of it, as you see as you read on. The Jews then argued, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Does he want us to start chewing on him? Is he talking about cannibalism? Then Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So he's obviously speaking spiritually. You're not to eat or drink blood. He commands us not to do that. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Does that mean you live forever in this life? No, the last part of the verse explains the first part. He has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, the presence of eternal life is in you if you drink into this word and feed on God. Why? Because this word is Christ in print. And so you're eating and drinking of Jesus Christ as you feed on this word. You're having him, you're imbibing his flesh, his body, his everything, his character most of all. And he is then in you, and so in you is the presence of eternal life to the Spirit of Christ. But he will raise you up at the last day, as most of us may die before the resurrection. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's the key. If Christ lives in you, that is eternal life living in you. You see, he abides in you. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Do you feed on Jesus Christ? Mr. Armstrong tells us in his autobiography, and he was not lying. He was not getting dramatic. He was human, and I've told some of our men just human things he did. He was human. He wasn't perfect, and some of these people make a god out of Mr. Armstrong, and they should not do that. In fact, I may write an article for the good, for the, uh, Living Church News. I started to say the good news that used to be the whole church paper. Which Armstrong do you follow? Because some of these other preachers, as you know, they try to claim their Armstrongs and they send it. They're, they, they're carrying on his work and they're the ones that are doing his job. Some of them he wouldn't even recognize on the street. You see him walking along, he wouldn't know who it is. They didn't know Mr. Armstrong. But Mr. Partian, wish he were still here, his wife did too. But he would verify that Mr. Armstrong did not think like that. I brought up things like that in the Council of Elders a number of times, which Mr. Armstrong, when he was alive, when Mr. Partian was alive, and so he could validate that and say, that's right. And now I'm the only one that's that from those days, unfortunately. But Mr. Armstrong did not want to be worshipped in that way at all. He did not want that. That was not his way. But he did certainly set us an example. And in his autobiography said, and I've talked to him personally about it, and once being Rod Meredith from Missouri and checking up on Mr. Armstrong at least once or twice. I remember once I asked Mrs. Armstrong, did your husband really get down on his knees and read the Bible? and pray over the Bible and read the Bible on his knees? And she said, yes, Rod, he really did. I came into the bedroom a few times, and he would put the Bible on the on the bed, she said. But he would be leaning over the bed and reading the Bible, and maybe he had it on a little lower table once or twice. But he would be reading the Bible on his knees, asking God to teach him, guide him, show him the truth. And I remember how intense Mr. Armstrong was. He would sit there writing and writing, and I would watch him sometimes. And if he got tired, he would go like that. And he said, i got to finish this. And he would get, get go on. He had a four-finger way of typing. He taught himself how to type. And uh, you could read it 
if it was from Mr. Armstrong, there's something about the way it came off the page. You knew it was him. And so he did have the forefinger. He had to teach himself to type that way. But he would read the Bible on his knees, praying and studying at the same time, asking God to help him understand. He was feeding on Christ. That's why I'm here. That's why most of you are here. God worked through him to bring most of the ministers, even many of these false ministers who try to deny him or put him down, and other false ministers who try to worship him, when he told them not to do that, but they learned the Sabbath from who? Herbert W. Armstrong. They learned the holy days from who? Herbert W. Armstrong. Learned the whole purpose of human existence from who? God used him as a human instrument. But he did do that, studying intensively, intensively. And I hope I can help all of you through those examples to get the picture, brethren, because many of us in God's church are shallow. I have noticed that. You'll notice a few verses here and there, and you used to be a Methodist or a Baptist like I did or Presbyterian, and you read a few verses here and there and get a little bit of inspiration, and that's it. No, you've got to drink into this book and read the whole book of John slowly and carefully and mark it, pray about it, and maybe pray quickly before you study. And they read two or three chapters slowly after praying and asking God to help you, to teach you, to help you understand. And maybe pray again at the end to understand and go forth and put that as part of your life and know that comes from God. So he that feeds on me will live because of me. We must feed on this book, and then we will think like God, act like God, eventually be like God in the resurrection. Because we are not perfect now, but if we have that attitude and continue and grow in that attitude, then God will make us perfect. We're not now, but he will make us that way if we seek him with all of our hearts. Notice verse 63. He said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. These words contain spiritual truth. These words contain the very mind of God, the way of God, the power of God. As you read these words, these words in this book are spirit and they are life. And so as you feed on those words, you will develop a relationship with God where God is real to you. And you will virtually picture Abraham being willing to slay his son. You will picture him leaving and going out where he didn't even know where he was going because he knew it was God telling him to do that. You can picture David going forth again and again to serve God, to pray to God, to cry out to God, save me, God, deliver me, fight my battles. I'm surrounded by 3,000 of the choice Commandos, the top officers, the top soldiers of Saul. And here I only have 300 men or 600 men. They outnumbers five to one. Help me. And you read the Psalms over and over. And you can see how God was very, very real. And David cried out to him again and again. He walked and talked with God. He communed with God. He saw God in the gentle breeze through the trees. He saw God in the stars. He saw God in the beautiful moon at night. He saw God in the waves rippling on the Sea of Galilee in the utter waterways. He saw God in a beautiful young child. He saw God in every event because God was his God. 
In him we live and move and have our being. He knew God was totally in charge of his life. And so he had to go forth and risk his life many times because God was real. And he wasn't just playing games about ready to lose a job or lose a house. So what? Your life goes right on. He was about to lose his very, very life again and again. He'd seen men butchered by Saul's soldiers, had their heads chopped off or thrust through with a spear and the blood spurred out. He knew that. He was intimately acquainted with battle. But he put his faith and trust in God in a remarkable way. And so he'll be the king over all Israel and tomorrow's world. Notice back in 2 Corinthians now, brethren, at this point, 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to uh, turn here to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians, I can... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 16. Paul writes under inspiration, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, as a lot of us are getting old. And we can think, well, you know, it's so sad. Well, it's sad in its human way, and yet all of us are like that. As I said, Dick Armstrong died at age 29. Well, I can't say her worrying all day about Mr. Punch and Mr. and Mrs. McNaughton. I hope you'll forgive me. But, you know, I could die long before you do. And a lot of these younger people could die more before I do or any of us. All of us are human. We're subject to death. Our life is here for a little while and then it's gone. So though he says we must not lose heart, though our outward man, our outward body as we get older is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Each one of us, as we study this book, as we meditate, I hope you'll learn to meditate after you read it, think about it, make it part of your being. And as you pray and ask God for power and for love, for joy, for peace, for faith and courage, for wisdom to put these things into action, he will help you do that. The inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. And brethren, anything we have gone through so far is a light affliction compared to what Paul went through. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, we must not look you know, when uh, Elisha's servant went out that one morning out of Elisha's house and a whole army was surrounding the house and he came in scared to death. He said, what do we do? What do we do? We're surrounded by an army. And Elisha, the prophet, prayed real quick. He said, Lord, help him to see. <laughs> and then God heard his prayer and the whole mountain was was surrounded by chariots of fire. <laughs> And the angels of God, we have those here when we need them, brethren. There will be chariots of fire with us as we go through these times ahead if we walk with God. And we have to understand that and have faith in that. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. They're here for a little while and gone but the things which are not seen are eternal. God's promises and God himself and God's promise of eternal life and giving us a spirit body that will never get sick, never run down, never get old, never die. That is real. 
Is God real to you? So you will go through any trial and trouble and never give up, never quit. As Churchill said, never, never, never give up. And that should be our attitude. The things which are not seen are eternal. So we've got to, again, have that total faith and attitude. Turn back now, if you would, to Psalm 71 at this point. Psalm 71. Here is just an example, of course. I'd like to read you about 15 to 35 Psalms of David, of course. Please read those a lot. The book of Proverbs and the Psalms of David. But Psalm 71, verse 1. In you, O Eternal, I put my trust. And brethren, that's the key. Nearly every great man and woman of God you ever read about will be a man or woman of faith. They believed in God. I put my trust. Let them, let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong habitation to which I may resort continually. You've given the commandment to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. God was David's rock. And that rock of David is the one who died for you and me. He was the God of the Old Testament, the rock. The rock of Israel, that rock was Christ. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust. Again, he put his trust in God. And you are my trust from my youth. By you have been upheld from my birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall continually be of you. He honored God, he worshiped God, he thanked God for his life and everything he had. And he walked with God. Because you read David's Psalms, you can see he prayed at night, he prayed in the morning, he prayed morning, noon, and night. He cried out to God with his being. He walked with God. And he only had the Old Testament understanding. In your mind, he might have made some mistakes because he had never heard the Sermon on the Mount. When he went to war, he was fighting the battles of God. We understand the difference there. But what he knew, he did wonderfully. And God says twice, only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite did David ever directly disobey what God told him to do. And that was a terrible sin, but that was once. And he bitterly, terribly, powerfully repented of that and never, ever did it again. God's word indicates that. So if I only make one big mistake, I'd be in good shape. I think most of you realize that about yourself. David was a man of powerful energy, powerful passions, but he only made one big mistake. When he made it, he made a big one, but he repented utterly and never did it again. He put his trust in God, O Eternal, in you. I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. He constantly had faith in God and walked and lived by faith. So that will be the man that we will see in a few years. We'll get to know him, this personality in the kingdom of God. He'll be here on this earth at Jerusalem, helping rule this earth under Jesus Christ. Turn back again to Hebrews, brethren, Hebrews chapter 10. He's talking here, as you know, to the, you might say, the headquarters church as I am today, and to you, brethren, listening in around the world But he was talking to the Hebrews, the early Christians in and around Jerusalem. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, he says in verse 35, verse 35. 
which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, you brethren who've been in the church so long, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. Yes, he will come. And we must understand that God is real. These events that are beginning to shake the world are real and they're happening and they're going to happen and they're going to get worse and worse and worse. And some of us will be shaken right out of the church if we're not walking with God and if we've not learned to put our faith and trust in God. But we have to have our faith and confidence in him. You have need of endurance. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. You've got to do that, brethren, to walk and live by faith. And try with your heart to develop and to build an increasing amount of faith and courage. I'm praying more the last year or two for both faith and courage. They go together. But it may be good to put them together. Sometimes we need just faith, but also courage to go through trials that we know are coming. Faith and courage. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe. There it is again, faith of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So our lives, our souls... Our being will be saved if we learn to walk and live by faith. And if we make God the center of our lives, if we make God real to our lives, that everything we see around us, we tie in with God and God's will. If we have a trial, if we have a sickness, if we have things come on us, let's say, Father, help me to learn every lesson You want me to learn. Don't blame the other guy. Help me to learn every lesson you want me to learn from this. Teach me. Guide me. Rebuke and chasten me in mercy as you do every son you love. And make me your full son that I may be in your kingdom and family and bear your name. And interact with other people, the great men and women of God down through the ages who've had to walk and live by faith and know them in the resurrection and be there because I have learned to put my faith and trust in you and you are the ultimate reality. You are God 